Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is The Media Show on BBC Radio. Oh, no, sorry, that was Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On the show this week, it's deja vu all over again as the government ponders selling Channel 4. So is the case any stronger now than it was five years ago? One of the earliest radio indies, Something Else, is bought by Sony Music Entertainment. So is this the start of a UK podcast gold rush? Plus, the EU flexes its regulatory muscles. We reflect on the shaky first fortnight of GB News. And in the Media Quiz, we do the math. It's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. And joining me today is Deadline's international editor, the man with the telly banter, it's Jake Cantor. Hello, Jake. (laughs) Hi, Ollie. How's it going? (laughs) Uh, Very well, thank you. Has it been fun this week explaining to Americans what an ad-funded government-owned TV company looks like? You do have to go through a bit of... um... Uh, linguistic acrobatics to try and get the message across as to what Channel 4 actually is to our American audience. But I think they get it. And um, it's important that they do because uh, it's a it's a very valuable asset. And there may well be some buyers in America who would be interested in said asset. Okay, well, we'll talk about that in just a second. But just briefly, I mean, if they understand the detail, do they nonetheless think of it as a slightly parochial story that everyone in Britain's getting their knickers in a twist about? Because it is small fry, isn't it, compared to the kind of stations that the likes of Discovery and Viacom are used to hoovering up? It, it's it's definitely small fry. I mean, it's valued at about a billion a billion pounds, which is what one point five, one point four billion dollars um, in a market where you know you've got huge mega mergers like Amazon taking over MGM for 8 billion odd uh, dollars. You know, this is this is small fry. Okay, more of that in just a second. We're just in the menu bants at the moment. So let me introduce back to the show as well, Christina Moore, founder of Don't Skip Media. And Christina, I discovered today on the board of governors at the Podcast Academy. Forgive me, I didn't know that was a thing. What is the Podcast Academy and should I join? Yes, you should do- join, definitely. The Podcast Academy is an organisation where we want to reward, train, mentor individuals within the podcast community. So it's not about representing the companies at all, you know, the Spotify's and the Apples of the world. It's about representing the individuals and rewarding them for their hard work. Okay, so training and mentorship in podcasting is an interesting one, isn't it? Because... You know, if you reach out to your favourite podcaster and you say to them, look, can I come and watch you record or can I help you do some research or can you tell me how to get my show on at work? I reckon, you know, one in three times probably, they're just going to write back and say, thanks very much, yes. Um, What do you need an organisation for? The organisation also has its award ceremony. So it's not just about the training and the mentorship. Um, It is about providing recognition to all of the producers across the the industry. Also, with the training and mentorship, it's a little bit more organised than just sending out uh, uh, an email and fingers crossed hoping for the best. With the training, uh, there's going to be a syllabus. Uh, A lot of it is online right now. um, and also with the mentorship programs, there are kind of goal markers or goal posts that you uh, need to meet in order to achieve some of your goals, ambitions, dreams. Nice. Okay. Well, talking of podcasting dreams, alongside you today is the writer, podcaster and audio critic Caroline Crampton, her very self. Hello, Caroline. Hello, Ollie. Uh, welcome back to the show as well. The British Podcast Awards are imminent. 
Uh, I'm curious whether you have any hot tips for that, any favourites that you'd like to see rewarded? I have to admit there are a lot of shows on there this year that are completely new to me, which I think is only a good thing. I feel like the first year the awards ran, I could have, you know, texted half the people on the shortlist as personal friends and that's no longer the case which is speaks well of the breadth and depth of the of the entries but there are a couple of my favorite shows on the list um folk on foot is nominated for best lockdown podcast that's a show mm. where uh, they interview a folk musician on a walk um there's and they you know pause to play instruments and it's all very lovely and atmospheric and then probably um, better than when they interview a rambler by getting them to play a folk instrument that could be a complete disaster yeah it's important that it's the other way around uh, <laughs> another favorite show of mine is um field recordings which is deeply random but extremely beautiful where people just send in these lovely soundscapes that they make all over the world so you might get you know the sound of dawn in bogota and then the sound of somebody's cat in moscow and each day it's a different one there you are tip for your podcast academy there christina if you want to be recognized by caroline in one of her columns record a show outdoors <laughs> great definitely it's what i you can see the theme of the last year can't you <laughs> Uh, let's start then with the biggest story of the week, and that is the government opening yet another consultation, a fifth by my count, to look at privatising Channel 4. Uh, Jake, this was last looked at back in 2016. What has changed since then? <laughs> it's not immediately abundantly clear, I have to say. Uh, I mean, the government argues that there have been substantial shifting sands in the industry, uh, and by that they mean that the entry of uh, streaming services has fundamentally changed the game and Channel 4's model, which is 90% ad-funded, is not going to be sustainable in the long term. That's the official on-the-record rationale for them revisiting this. So unofficially, actually, I mean, as a public asset, oh, oh, go on, give us the unofficially. That's more interesting than what I was going to say. <laughs> I, I think, I think there's, I mean, there's, it's all a bit murky. I think unofficially, sources are sort of saying to me, these are, and these are sources close to Channel Four that um, they, they're speculating that Channel Four is a victim of the, of the culture wars, and the government is keen to show that it is cracking down on sort of perceived liberal values which Channel Four upholds. Which is a bizarre state of affairs, Caroline. I mean, you could understand, obviously, that if you're one of Boris Johnson's spin doctors, you're not going to like Channel 4 News very much. I, I get that. But for one thing, support of an independent news in the public service uh, remit that does that kind of thing makes you look good if they're criticising you, you know, free and fair and all of that. And secondly, I mean, Channel 4 News actually is a Tory success story, isn't it? It was created by the Thatcher government. It supports low, hundreds of small businesses up and down the country. Why do they want to look like they've got it in for them? I was truly surprised when I, I saw this news came up because, yes, as you say, started by a Thatcher government and, a, you know, great success for sort of small to medium sized enterprise. And also Channel 4 is also taking part in the so-called levelling up agenda. You know, they're moving jobs out of London to places like Leeds and Bristol and so on, very much on, on track with what the government is pushing media organisations to do. So you are forced to think about is it because they put a melting ice sculpture of Boris Johnson on television during the last election? Is it really that petty? You're kind of forced to think that maybe it is. Or possibly even, is it Oliver Dowden wanting to make a name for himself in this kind of culture wars zone? You know, maybe he's not really wanting to privatise Channel 4 at all. And we know that John Whittingdale's wanted to do it for a long time, Caroline, but maybe Oliver Dowden's heart isn't actually necessarily in it. It's just a case of like, well, I'll float it and then I can be the culture secretary that, that tried to do something and take on the, the liberal work agenda. Maybe it is the classic just having the consultation counts as taking an action. It gives you a good, easy win video clip to put on Twitter or something. Maybe it is as simple as that. I mean, Christina, a lot has been made by Channel 4 um, about how it is the place where so many TV indies sort of get their big break, really. Their first show or their first major commission comes from Channel 4. You're a small business working primarily in audio, but can you explain why that break is important, you know, whatever platform it's on? Yeah, it's extremely important to um, independents up and down the country because there is a mandate that that 
that Channel 4 have to kind of support. They have to be behind. And once you privatise that, then you, you take that mandate away, right? Because what private company um, is going to want to acquire someone like Channel 4 with all those restrictions in place? So I think that it's really important to independent companies that um, Channel 4 remains a public company. Also worth saying as well, Christina, that if you're an independent company making a show for Channel 4 versus almost every other commissioner, you get to keep more of the intellectual property. I mean, that's got to be appealing to indies as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. I mean, if you're really good at negotiating um, on your own behalf, then you try and hold up, hold on to as much as your own of your own IP as possible. Um, but for yeah, for sure, in this instance, where you can essentially ladder in your uh, IP. Uh, that's a great way of retaining um, more and more autonomy as an indie. Why don't we, Jake, just handle heads on the question of who might buy Channel 4? Um, because, you know, Christina was saying, if you don't dilute the remit, then the buyers will be limited. Let's say that actually the government do conclude that, yes, they do want to sell it because it's worth a billion pounds to the economy but that they understand that the remit needs to remain in place, so they're not going to dilute it. Would anyone buy it? Well, I think they've already conceded ground on the remit being diluted. Um, there was a su suggestion in the press release that Channel 4 could move into uh, production, for example, which it doesn't do for obvious reasons. It's there to serve the independent production sector. So having an in-house production arm would undercut that. Um, I mean, look, Channel 4 did a piece of work on this in 2015-16. They assessed the market and looked at who might buy it. Back then, the names that it came up with were BT, which is not going to happen now. BT is actually disposing of its television arm currently at the moment. There's a, there's a, a sale process going on as we speak. And two other players, Viacom CBS, uh, which owns Channel 5 here in the UK, and uh, Discovery, um, which is uh, currently uh, merging with uh, Warner Warner Brothers in um, in America, uh, so has got pretty big fish to fry over there. So, uh, you know, if if the answer to protecting a, a a uniquely British success story is flogging it to the Americans, then I'm not entirely sure I think that's very coherent um, uh, at all, particularly. I mean, there are other options on the table. They could float it. They could do an IPO. They could merge it with ITV or Channel 5 or BBC Worldwide. Those are all things that were talked about last time, weren't they? That has been suggested that they they could they could merge it with another uh, British public sector broadcaster, public service broadcaster, sorry. Uh, and the other thing they could do is 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 find a private backer, a, a private equity company or, uh, you know, a financier of that ilk. I mean... The other thing, to be fair, that would happen, Caroline, potentially, if an investor, even if they are American, came on the scene, is there would suddenly be potentially a lot more money to commission programmes with, because Channel 4 wouldn't be reliant on ad money and the sales they make through worldwide sales, all four, etc. They would actually just have a backer with deep pockets, which they don't have at the moment. I asked Alex Mahon about that the other day, and she sort of said, well, I don't know, I'm not aware of any moguls with deep pockets who are, who are looking around. And you can understand that they'd be worried that wouldn't last very long. But in fairness to the government, it's potentially possible, isn't it? That someone would come along and say, here is £300 million we want to invest in your channel. That would be good for the British independent sector. Theoretically, yes. With any sort of media acquisition, there's always the idea of the benevolent billionaire who just wants to see great programmes made or great articles written or whatever. So yes, absolutely possible. History tells us not likely, though, I think. They do exist. They do exist. I mean, you know, you look at Jeff Bezos and what he's done with the Washington Post. I mean, if if he if someone did the same with Channel Four, that would be really a fantastic thing. Agreed. Okay, staying with uh, politics, the EU have announced a review into British TV productions being defined as European works. Uh, this could have a big impact on the UK TV sector, couldn't it, Jake? Tell us why. Yeah, I mean, look, this is not quite as important as defending the Good Friday Agreement, but uh, you know, potentially millions of pounds are at stake here. Um, I think the, the issue is that basically UK television and film would be declassified as European works, uh, which means that, well, in simple terms, um, uh, TV, uh, uh, TV companies and streamers must show certain quotas of European content and British content would no longer qualify 
under those quotas, uh, which means that you could see less of um, uh, the kind of exports that Europe loves. Shows like Midsummer Murders, Downton Abbey, um, small things like The Crown uh, and Sex Education on uh, Netflix. Well, they'd still be there, though, wouldn't they? They'd still be on Netflix. They just wouldn't be on the front page because the French like to protect European productions. That I think the, the issue probably comes when you're selling new content into the market. And if suddenly the UK British content doesn't qualify, then it suddenly becomes less attractive. Um, I mean, look, there's arguments from Pact, from John McVeigh, that this is very short-sighted and protectionist. But ultimately, there is absolutely sod all we can do about it. If the EU member states decide that this is what they want to do, um, we, we have no say in that because we have left the European Union. It, it would be a bit odd, though, Christina, in a way... Uh intellectually for them to say this defense of a european quota was actually all along a european union quota you know that somehow european culture is defined by whether or not you're in the eu i mean that could be considered a threat to any country that's thinking of leaving the eu in the future and it is patently ridiculous i mean britain is still in europe <laughs> it's just that we're not in the eu I mean, it is a continent and we do share a common culture it's a bit odd yeah I, maybe that's being done on purpose, maybe it is a bit of a threat, just a very subtle threat that this is what happens if you leave the EU. I mean, when we voted, and the royal we, <laughs> when we voted to leave the EU, we had no idea what the results or what the outcomes were going to be. And now the EU is in a position to say, here you go, here are the outcomes. Um, and I think that that they are kind of flexing a little bit. I think they're flexing. Do you think UK companies, Caroline, can lobby to somehow be included. I mean, you know, Jake says there's sort all we can do about it, but as an individual company, if you owned a big IP like Downton Abbey, can you can you push uh, individual countries regulators, do you think? Uh, I I don't know that they can. I think I think Jake's right. I think this is a, a sort of EU level regulated decision, isn't it, that sets the quota and therefore, you know, if whoever runs the front page of German Netflix wants to put Downton Abbey on the front of it or whatever. I'm not sure that they necessarily can overrule that decision. And yeah, it does seem truly bizarre, especially if there's demonstrable interest in countries, in the European countries in these programmes. You would have thought just trying to serve viewers what they want would be the priority rather than curating a kind of idealised political system on your screen. That's where this battle is won, I think, is the sort of symbolic argument that you're depriving audiences of content that they love. But are you? I mean, you know, you, you gave well, Midsummer you Murders are. as an example. Yeah. Well, you are well, if they disappear, but if they're just not, <laughs> hold on, if they're just not part of the quota, and so you're talking about then the 70% of other stuff, which doesn't have to be from Europe, something like Midsummer Murders, if it's popular, is going to be purchased as part of the other 70%, isn't it? It's just the same as all American content that's good ends up on our TV screens because it's cheaper than making our own stuff and it's popular. I mean, you know, the high quality British stuff will sell everywhere because it's good. Yeah, I think that's true. It's not going to evacuate the market completely. But um, I think, like I said earlier, there's, there is potentially going to be less appetite for the new. Um, and that is not a good thing for UK production. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. All right, let's talk about the uh, audio world now. Big story there last week was that content company something else uh, co-helmed by long-standing friend of the show, Steve Ackerman, has been acquired by Sony Music Entertainment. Uh, Caroline, they had a stake in it, didn't they, for a little over a year, I think. Uh, but now they're going to own the whole thing. What does um, something else make and why do Sony want it? So they're a very long-standing uh, production company in the UK. Uh, they've moved into podcasting in the last few years. Some of their biggest shows include things like... Uh, David Tennant makes a podcast. Um, some of the short form shows like the recent documentary series on the Maxwells called The Power. Uh, they've worked in lots of different genres and they've, they've made some impressive stuff. And this joint venture with Sony Music Entertainment, I believe, began in February 2020, although it seems a lot longer now, given everything that's happened since. And now they've moved into a full acquisition. And I think the acquisition is probably... Uh, kind of a marker of two things. One, that the joint venture went really well, that, you know, Sony was really, really happy with what they did with their money, um, which tells you something about the way the audio market's going. And then secondly, just that consolidation is the name of the game in podcasting right now. We've already seen it happening in the US over the last couple of years, and it seems like now it's going international. Isn't it interesting, Christina, that we're in a world now when I ask Caroline Crampton, why have Sony bought something else, that the answer is, oh, because they make David Tennant's podcast. I mean, that I'm sure is right, but something else is a radio indie with a huge history and prestige, you know, compared to other radio indies in this country. They've been going for decades. They make the kitchen cabinet. They make Gardener's Question Time. And yet probably Sony aren't that interested in making those blue chip shows for Radio 4. They literally want David Tennant's podcast. That has changed, hasn't it? That wouldn't have been the case probably even three years. I mean, those shows didn't exist three years ago. Right, that's absolutely correct. Those shows wouldn't have existed three years ago. And there was a little bit of an acceleration as well um, during the pandemic with a lot of talent uh, moving towards podcasts and a lot of audiences moving towards podcasts to consume their um, their information and their content. Um, so there's been a massive shift um, in podcasting in the last, let's say, three years years, 18 months. Um, one that I think that is positive overall. Um, so what it displays is that there's a lot of faith in the sector now, right? So people are, well, large companies like Sony are like, okay, this is doing well enough for us to put our money behind it. Um, and, and I do know, and I understand some of the, I, I guess the concerns that solo podcasters and even indies have behind these kind of acquisitions right so they feel like with more money behind um companies like something else they can behave more aggressively they can compete um on a landscape that indies like myself and uh solo podcasters just cannot compete with when it comes to asking talent to either host their shows and also to be guests on their shows um so there are some concerns that i do understand uh but i think overall acquisitions of independent companies are a good thing for the sector. What about that indie podcasting point, Caroline? Because there comes a point, doesn't there, where the sort of rising tide boats analogy stuff wears thin. Uh, if you're an indie podcaster like I am, like Christina is and like you are, um, on the one hand, it's great to have a flood of interest in podcasts and podcasting because surely it must be the case instinctively it feels right that if more people are listening to podcasts, they're more likely to discover yours. But there'll come a point at which... If every podcast being featured on Apple Podcasts homepage or on Spotify playlists or attracting big name talent, as Christina says, is owned by a few networks, we've really just created an ecosystem that isn't any different to the old media world. Exactly. Yeah. I, over the last few years, I've become increasingly disillusioned with that rising tides lifts all boats analogy that um, big players like to deploy sort of in explanation of, of any move like that. And I've actually recently come to think that the, the problem with that is almost a technological one rather than anything else. If you think about YouTube, for instance, if you watch even the smallest YouTube creator, 
or you say you watch a big one, you can still get recommended a smaller YouTube uh, creator's video straight after. The algorithm is there to show you more of what you like. You're getting served stuff from all across the platform. There's no equivalent in podcasting. So even though, uh, you know, my show might sit right next to David Tennant's podcast in the app, theoretically, uh, there's nothing telling you if you listen to his that mine is even there, that it exists. So I'm just not sure what the mechanism for the floating is, if that makes sense. Well, there'll be a bit more chat about that later when we talk about Facebook's uh, new uh, entrance into this world. But Jake, um, from your perspective, you know, you report on the TV industry mainly. These kind of buyouts happen there all the time, don't they? Uh, I know I asked you earlier whether Channel 4 was small fry, but it's kind of the same question, really. I mean, you know, are we, us three, the others, getting all a bit excited because it's about podcasting, whereas really this is just, you know, of course, big companies buy medium-sized companies. That's what happens. No, I think it's really a, a really interesting, fascinating deal. And I know, well, congratulations to Steve Ackerman, who I know is a friend <laughs> of the podcast. Yeah, I mean, look, something else do TV as well. They're a smart company with an excellent reputation. So I can see exactly why uh, a company like Sony would be interested in them. I, I think one of the most interesting trends in podcasting at the moment that I see is um, is shows being adapted into TV dramas. Um, if you look at the likes of The Missing Crypto Queen and uh, the BBC's Tunnel 29 and Audible's West Cork, which is about the uh, Sophie Toscan de Plantier murder. Um, these shows are are in demand, in demand, and producers are you know involved in bidding wars to get the rights, and that can only be a good thing for the industry. And Christina, you have a podcast network. I mean, I'm not asking you to name your price here, but you know, <laughs> is there in the back of your mind now, in a way that there probably wouldn't have been five years ago? an exit strategy are you thinking yes i would like someone like sony to approach me and say here's x million pounds it comes at a price like the the exit strategy um so right now i have a lot of autonomy over what i do what shows i uh produce over what um who i invite onto the team and all of those sorts of things and the structure just basically the structure of any kind of podcast but if once you're acquired um, by a company, you're kind of living by their rules and you're playing their game now. Um, and they will pro- they will promise you the earth, right? They'll be like, yes, here's all your money. Here's your senior position. Um, you'll be a valued member of the team. And then you get there and you'll find out just how valued you are. <laughs> Um, you won't have the same amount of freedom that you do when you are independent, but you will have a lot more money. What makes you happy? Yeah, I'm going to take that as a yes, you would consider selling. <laughs> but, but yeah, fine, the if, price is... If I could leave within a year, then maybe, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Caroline, I'm curious about something else's press release around this acquisition, which highlighted how Sony were, I think the quote was, an artist-first company, uh, which might be fair enough. I don't know enough about the record industry, frankly, to know how they differentiate themselves music-wise. But if that's true... Does it hint at, you know, maybe we've just seen the beginning, maybe we've just scratched the surface of celebrity-driven podcasting, and in fact, the next strategy, you know, it's not it's not pop stars having Twitter anymore, it's any new artist that Sony's going to launch is going to have their own podcast. Oh, I think definitely. There's already been some moves around the kind of uh, symbiosis between um, music and, and podcasts. There have been some sort of... Um, podcast versions of albums Spotify have experimented with this like putting commentary tracks in between um, tracks um, on an album almost like DVD extras that kind of thing and uh, Sony have um, started leveraging their the music rights they own to use them in podcasts you know because that's property that they have that everyone else has to either not use or pay a huge amount for so yeah that that sort of connection is really heating up. Um, I do think as well, like um, if you ever listen to a podcast made by iHeartRadio in the US, they play, especially if you're not in the US, they fill their ad infantry with trails for their other shows. So many musicians have podcasts on iHeartRadio radio you know people you country musicians that you've not heard of put out music for 20 years have got podcasts on iHeartRadio so I do think that that kind of carpet bombing approach is coming I will have heard of them but that's because I do listen to Chris Country Uh, let's talk now (laughs) about uh, TV advertising because the government has confirmed a ban on junk food advertising before 9pm Jake what are the details 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 actually fairly straightforward. It's kind of basically what you've described. There's not going to be junk food advertising on telly uh, before 9pm. There's going to be tighter restrictions online as well. Uh, the rationale behind this is that by stopping kids seeing McDonald's adverts on telly or online, it means that, you know, kids are going to be less likely to go into uh, McDonald's and buy a Big Mac. And, that you know, that's a that's a noble ambition. Um, but uh, broadcasters and the ad industry, to uh, to coin a phrase... Are not loving it. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they. You know, junk food is big business, uh, and so with less of it on our screens, uh, there will sort of basically be less ad, uh, ad revenue sloshing around in the in the TV milkshake. Um, ITV chief executive Carolyn McCall has spoken about this a number of times in the past. She, she thinks it's arbitrary and ineffective. Um, she basically says that the money that is uh, not spent on advertising will be used to fund price cuts on junk food, therefore making them more tempting to young people. Or, Christina, it could come to us. As one of the things I've noticed is that audio is exempted. So you're allowed radio ads and you're allowed podcasts. Great. <laughs> yeah. Sign me up, Mac D's. Um, <laughs> I th- one of the things that I was th- you know, considering with this article and basically with this position that the government has taken is that they're assuming that young people are still consuming their content on television. It's like, okay. Um, (laughs) uh, We know that for a fact that um, a lot of young people are consuming their content through unscheduled media, whether that be uh, streaming services, YouTube, um, even on their Xbox. So I'm not sure exactly how effective... um, this is going to be and what kind of threat that's going to be. Yeah, but I mean, Cadbury's wouldn't advertise on CITV if it was ineffective, would they? I mean, they, they do see a result. They sell more whole nut because they advertise it on telly. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. They see a result now. Yeah, they still see a result now. But is that shifting? It, I think that it is. I think that um, as it becomes more popular and as brands become more sophisticated with their advertising, they'll be advertising through different channels and different digital channels and not just through uh, television. I think the the weight of television advertising to other advertising um, will, will shift. And actually, Caroline, they'll still be advertising on TV because it's not as simple, actually, as Jake made it out to be. You can still advertise if you're McDonald's, for example, I'm just picking them because they're the big fast food brand everyone knows to be representative of any fast food company. Uh, you can still advertise if you're McDonald's between 5pm and 9.30pm. You're just not, you're literally not allowed to show the Big Mac, but you can have Ronald McDonald singing a song and you still have the brand association there, don't you? You do. It's one of those subtleties that is probably quite meaningful if you work in advertising, but to your average TV viewer, including me sitting at home, it'll still be McDonald's. I will still think about the food I can buy there when I see it. So yes, I would be if if indeed this goes ahead, I would be really interested to see a study a year on on has it had any impact because I remain skeptical at the moment. Also, Jake, I mean, there's kind of twin concerns uh, in the campaign groups to try and restrict advertising. I'd say one is fast food and the other is gambling. And I mean, this is my view. I know that fast food is harmful. But, you know, a burger isn't harmful, whereas obviously a bet can get you addicted to online gambling. Isn't it a bit weird that they prioritise the burgers over the sports betting? I would agree that sports betting is, a, is an area that needs to be looked at closely, I think. Um, you, know, you, you only have to watch the European Championships on ITV to see how much sports betting there is on telly. And, um, you know, I'm an avid football fan and it's just constant bombardment and... Luckily, I don't have a proclivity towards gambling, but I think if I did, then it would be dangerous. It is dangerous. GB News. Let's go there. Uh, It is only two weeks old. And whilst, of course, it is totally unfair to judge the success of any new channel based on its baby steps, let's do that. Uh, Jake, it was a car crash, wasn't it? (laughs) Uh, No, not really. (laughs) I know that's not what you want to hear, but... uh, No, I want to hear what you think. look at... If you look at the way that it's rating, uh, and I'm getting my um, my information from uh, broadcast ratings guru Stephen Price. Go on, uh, GB News. GB News did very well. I mean, it uh, it's been averaging about fifty thousand viewers in its first week, which puts it on a par with Sky, 
Sky News. Um, BBC is sort of off in the distance with around 90,000 viewers. But you know, to, to establish yourself as a genuine rival to Sky News within a few days of launch is a really impressive achievement, um, regardless of what you think of GB News and its, uh, and its mantra and um, what it stands for. Well, no, to be clear, when I said it's a car crash, what I'm referring to are the news fails that are all over social media. Let, let's get to those. I mean, look, they, it's, it looks fairly amateurish. Uh, the tech issues were extraordinary. Uh, and absolutely well, It looks the plain. same as this. So I just want to audio describe what this looks like to our audience who are only listening. So behind me, I have two soundproofed like things that I got from Ikea with a blanket draped over them. I literally look the same as Andrew Neil's monologue set. And you three are on a Zoom call at the moment in little square boxes. And that looks the same as Dan Wooten's evening show. I mean, Cheap doesn't even cover it, does it? You know, this is the production we put in for a, for a podcast that we are recording on phones. The difference is that our signals are stable and you can hear us at all times, whereas on GB News, they're, they're cutting out all... I mean, I was watching it last night in preparation for today and... Dan Wooten queued up a clip and a guest, and they just never materialised. <laughs> I mean, it is. It has been fun watching the clips, hasn't it, Christina? But you do. There's a bit of Schadenfreude, especially for me as a presenter. I am watching it, think because some of those presenters are like highly experienced as well. You know, it's not just kind of rookies making mistakes. They've just been put in an environment where they're not being looked after, and there's nothing you can do if you're sitting in front of an autocue that is not working. You can't really ad lib the news. Um, you know, if the advert doesn't turn up when it's supposed to and you've already linked to it, what can you do but sit there in silence for a few seconds until you work out what you're going to say? Um, so you do feel kind of sorry for them. And it, I guess it's inevitable with such a huge undertaking. I feel like they invested a lot of money in the uh, journalists and also in the talent and then zero into the production. Um, <laughs> I think somebody needs to really look at that again. Uh, I, I just don't know how it went wrong. But in some ways, it, the, the mistakes are what made it really popular. <laughs> I only watched it because it went wrong. That is the only reason why I watched it. Uh, I don't know whether I'll be a returning viewer, but we'll see. Uh, I, yeah, I, I feel like that's what that's what happened. Somebody focused a little too heavily on the talent um, and on the uh, the I guess the notable journalists, and not enough in making sure that the production um, workflow was just like executed really, really well. And somebody needs to go in and do that. That's the conspiracy theory, isn't it? That they they did this on purpose to, to generate interest. I, I do know that the GB News Fails Twitter account, which amassed like 60,000 odd followers in the space of a few days, has just disappeared. It's been shut down, yeah. Although they have resurrected as something else, I noticed. I mean, on a person, this is a completely personal perspective, uh, and I don't know if it represents anything, Jake, but I mean, I'm a, I'm a partisan Andrew Neil fan. I think he's an absolute class act. I would watch him all the time on his own shows on the BBC and just think he was in a class of his own, really, in terms of being compelling and using language and, you know, making a point, whether I agree with him or not. And I haven't been tempted to watch him on GB News because it looks so cheap. And I find that quite interesting in myself that I was swayed by that because it's still the same man. And in fact, he's now sort of unrestricted by public service broadcast guidelines. And yet I actually just don't want to watch it. It just it's actually put me off. It's not even the political smell of it. It is literally the look of it. Yeah, I mean, look, they've they've clearly made some tweaks on screen. So if you were watching on the first couple of nights, it does look slightly different. The, the sets are better lit. Um, they're positioning the presenters in smarter ways. Uh, they're thinking more carefully about the way that they throw to different uh, guests. Um, you know, this is an evolving thing. They clearly got to air a bit earlier than they would have, uh, than they should have done, even though it was delayed a few times. I know that doesn't really make much sense, but they, they, they're on air probably too soon. Uh, and they will iron out these issues, I think. I mean, look, I, I think. It's going to generate. It's going to continue to generate a lot of buzz. GB News. They are already on Ofcom's radar. There's been, you know, just shy of 400 complaints about Dan Wooten's debut show. Uh, there will be an investigation, I should imagine, and that will keep generating headlines. And I think if if success is creating buzz online, um, you know, creating viral clips that. Uh, then lead to very divisive uh, conversation. GB News is probably doing its job. 
Is the problem, if there is a problem, Caroline, I'm talking about the people that are complaining, is the problem that it's called GB News? Because it isn't really a news channel, is it? You know, if you think about LBC, which it's obviously modelled on, LBC isn't called LBC News, and they have a station called LBC News, and that sounds a lot more like the news. <laughs> you know, LBC is an opinion station, and I just sort of wonder if it was called GB Views, it would be much clearer what it was. It's the fact that people feel uncomfortable, isn't it, that it's being presented as, here's the facts. I think so, yeah. I do think the the branding and the positioning of it as this could be your only source of, of information is a bit odd when, uh, like you, I've watched it because I find it entertaining, um, you know, or, or like Christine was saying, like I've tuned in because because I'm told there'll be something funny to see. And I would hazard a guess that a significant proportion of the the audience are doing the same at the moment. The, there's a novelty value in seeing, you know, sort of non-BBC-esque, completely opinionated show, but from a British perspective, you know, we're used to seeing that from other countries. But that's not how they're positioning it yet. I think maybe that will come. It's also interesting that it's taken so long in a way for there to be a nightly opinion show at a time that isn't the paper review slot, Christina, because for a long time, the paper review slot on both the BBC News Channel and Sky News has been the most popular part of the evening. And it's, you know, cheap to produce. It's two people getting £75 to sit on a sofa and say what's on the front of the papers tomorrow. Uh, and yet you can't watch it till 10.30 or 11.30. So they have managed to find an hour and a half of time where people just might want that content and it's there for them. Yeah, I think that that has been a good move. I, again, I'm much like you. I'm not going to comment on the content, but I think it was a good move in terms of where they place the slot. What they have done is they've clearly delineated and segmented an audience, haven't they? And that is actually something that we do in podcasting, isn't it? That's what they're doing. They're super serving people. And that's something that TV hasn't done very well in this country. Yeah, yeah. And in part, and so does YouTube. And in part, that's the reason why a lot of audiences have been flocking towards YouTube and to um, podcasts and various um, other platforms is because the, the TV hasn't really served audiences what they want from their commentary and from their news. Um, and so what GB has done is taken advantage of that, um, move very quickly to a fault, as we know, um, but it has done that. Um, and I feel like that if they can get their act together very quickly, other, I, I want to say news sources, but other like news sources will follow suit. Finally on this, because this is supposed to be the news in brief <laughs> section, Jake, but I'm curious, since you do study this stuff professionally, what your prediction is here. I mean, do you think GB News will still exist in, I'm going to say two years, because I think in a year's time, they'll still be giving it a go if it wasn't working. Do you think GB News will still be here in two years, two years time? There, there are definitely questions about its commercial sustainability, um, whether they're going to make uh, the, the the revenue that they need from advertising is uh, uh, is remains to be seen. Uh, they are going to experiment with sort of membership models, um, which uh, puts them in the same bracket as the Guardian, which is uh, an unusual and ironic twist there. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that will be the test. I mean, look, they've got some interesting backers as well. That's the other thing who may be prepared to bankroll this in the future. You look at some a company like Discovery. You know, they're not short of a few bob, and if they've decided that GB News is something that they want to support, then I don't think they're doing that for the short term. They are doing that because they think there's a genuine proposition here, and the chance for them to to stake a bit of uh, you know broadcasting real estate. Yeah, and possibly in other European countries as well. Andrew Neil was hinting that, you know, they might be able to set up a French version, a German version, etc. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a global roller. They, they need to uh, they need to stop the advertiser boycott, though. That's that's not been good, genuinely, to have companies like Ikea and Vodafone turning around and saying we don't want to advertise on GB News, um, regardless of what they say on air. That is not a good thing. Let's talk about newspapers. And The Sun has lost £201 million in the last year, according to News UK, who own the tabloid. Uh, Caroline, why such a fall from grace? Well, there are two things that they they cite. One is lockdown um, and then its consequent effect on newsstand sales. You know, WH Smith's being closed for months on end, uh, all high street shops, etc, where people might pick up papers. And the growth in digital revenue has not been sufficient in any way to offset that. So yeah, I think in a nutshell, that's, that's why it is. 
We're also seeing, I think we're also seeing the phone hacking. The, the chickens are coming home to roost on phone hacking. There's no there's no doubt about that. I mean, look, they had a, a charge of £52 million in fees and damages paid to, to, to civil claimants. So that's a big chunk if you're trying to make a profit. <laughs> yeah, but even so, uh, the Sun's losses outstrip the ones that they've handed over in settlements for phone hacking. So, I mean, Christina, if you were, <laughs> I've just asked you about GB News, I'm now going to ask you if you were the editor of The Sun, another unlikely proposition, I'm sure. Uh, but what would you do to turn the ship around? <laughs> would I turn the ship around or would I just close it? I just, I, <laughs> Or would I just sink it even to continue using the analogy? Um, <laughs> I, How would I turn around? I feel like with The Sun... And in part, this is down to its owners. It acted too slowly when it came to um, innovation within the digital sphere. So uh, as Caroline, Caroline already mentioned, that uh, the digital uh, advertising revenue hasn't been sufficient enough to um, make up for those losses. But that's because they were too slow to move in the preceding years of the pandemic. Anyone who was successful out of the pandemic already did the groundwork when it came to their digital propositions, whether that was advertising memberships, whether that was kind of like Facebook groups or um, YouTube channels um, or even podcasts, right? So a lot of the other news networks have been able to weather the storm of the pandemic because they had all those other digital assets and the sun was just very, very slow and didn't make much of a move in any of other any of those other areas. I also wonder as well, Caroline, whether they're having a bit of an identity crisis. Uh, Liz Gerrard, writing in the New European, I noted, said, the mail is sharper, the star is wittier, the mirror more caring, Metro is free. Who needs the sun anymore? Who's it talking to? What is it trying to say? Yeah, that's very much how I feel about it, is when you're trying to you know, explain the British tabloids to someone who isn't from here, what would you say about the sun? You know, once upon a time, you would have said the sun what won it and page three. And uh, neither of those things are applicable anymore. It's, it's still the second biggest newspaper in the country, just to, just to be clear. <laughs> but it needs to be the biggest, really, to turn a proper profit, doesn't it? I mean, that's what's interesting about their model. They need to be mass market. It's no good having a niche. Well, they, they are mass market. It's, it's, you know, it's still the second biggest newspaper in the country. And clearly, this is obviously um, news. But is it really news that newspapers are loss leaders? And does that change Rupert Murdoch's opinion of, of why he owns the Sun? I Probably not, I would say. Okay, let's turn our attention to a controversy in the world of TV now. And the BAFTA-winning production company behind The Crown uh, is under the spotlight this week after a report in The Guardian that they, this is Left Bank Pictures, allegedly mishandled a complaint by two female freelancers who have since stopped working for the company. The complaints are against a senior male executive who pled guilty to sexual assault. Uh, and the allegations are that Left Bank just didn't handle it properly. Uh, what's being said? Yes, uh, these two women, uh, Holly, I hope I'm pronouncing her surname correctly, Bordelon and uh, Laura Johnson, uh, they've basically accused Left Bank of uh, downplaying Chris Croucher, who is the uh, the man who was accused at the centre of this. They're accused of downplaying his, uh, his wrongdoing. Um, Left Bank initially refused to fire him. Uh, and uh, the women also said that uh, Left Bank failed to advocate for them when they wanted to report this matter to the police. That, that's kind of the crux of their argument, basically. Left Bank have said very clearly that the women's well-being was uh, absolutely essential during its investigation into the original complaint. Um, they've also said that they fully cooperated with the police investigation, uh, although they um, had to the police had to secure a production order to access information from Left Bank, although that is actually fairly standard practice um, when it comes to requesting information. I suppose, Christina, in a way, the question is, is this good news in a strange sort of way, you know, despite it being a horrible episode? Is it good news that it's come to light because that wouldn't have happened pre-Me Too? Or, you know, is it bad news that it's still going on, this stuff? I think both of those things are correct. 
we probably wouldn't know about it if it wasn't for the Me Too movement. Um, there would have been a cover up. It would have been swept under the carpet. That's even if it was acknowledged by the production company. Or if it, even by the public, it might not have been taken seriously. Oh, you know, an executive is a bit handsy, big surprise. You know, whereas now that is taken seriously as a sexual misconduct. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It wouldn't have been taken seriously by anybody within our society. Um, apart from other women. <laughs> um but I do think that there's still work to be done. It still happened and it still happened in relatively recent history. So um, when this took place, I believe the Me Too movement was already taking traction. It was just, so he, in spite of the Me Too movement, he still did this. He thought he could still get away with this. And that's a problem. Um, why? are male executives in this particular instance and many others why do they feel like in spite of the um in spite of all eyes being on topics like this do they still think that they can get away with it and they think that because there's a problem with the institution is some of the answer to that question caroline because they were freelancers i mean i'd hope not but you do wonder if the situation is different when you're talking about members of staff, when everyone's very clear at executive level, there's going to be a problem here. I wondered that as well when I read the story. And I, I think that's a important point, perhaps, for investigations and so on to focus on is, you know, entertainment generally, audio, TV, all kinds, f- relies very heavily on contract workers and freelancers. And there are all kinds of things that freelancers don't enjoy, like employees such as, you know, paid holiday time and that kind of thing. But that kind of cast iron protection of an automatic tribunal and, you know, the employee handbook and all that kind of thing. Similarly, they don't necessarily have access to. What's interesting about this case, though, is I believe the company did have policies in place that their actions, their their immediate actions didn't follow. Um, so there is a sense in which they did have a protection and I think protection and diversity policy, but by not, you know, dismissing or taking the, the man into disciplinary action and just instead letting him resign with notice, they didn't even follow their own policies. Even when you bring on freelancers, well, I can speak for myself, there are protections within those contracts, within those freelance agreements. And so even if people are value signaling um, with, you know, by signing up to various like packs and, um, you know, registering certain diversity um, boards and bodies, there's still that freelancers are still protected under their, their freelance agreements. And so it was actually even more, poorly handled from my perspective than just kind of like oh there were provisions in place and we just didn't follow them no freelancers are protected under um, any terms of employment well that's a lesson for every company isn't it Jake you know we see routinely uh, production companies signing up to frankly virtue signaling you know policies you know we will employ x number of people from diverse communities and we will do everything we can for disabled people and we fly the pride flag or whatever it is but actually when things happen there are still issues because it seems like very often there's not someone whose job it is to make sure that it's implemented yeah i I think you're spot on companies have to be very mindful of the fact that when they're signing up to these pledges that they then follow through and i'm told that some people at left bank uh, acknowledge that if they had their time again, they would probably have handled this a bit differently. But I think it's really encouraging in a in a in a funny way. And hear me out: it's really good that women are coming forward and telling these stories. It's really important for the industry and really important for everyone involved. We are seeing a bit of a Me Too movement in the British TV industry at the moment. Slightly late, but it's really good that it's happening. Um, we need to get to the bottom of these cases. They are, you know, a lot of them are accusations at the moment. So we've got, you know, Noel Clark is facing accusations from more than 20 women. Uh, there's another very senior producer called Charlie Hansen, who until last month was working on uh, Netflix's uh, Ricky Gervais series, Afterlife. Again, he stands accused. Um, uh, but that the, those accusations have sparked a bigger debate about these issues in television and we are going to see uh, a very high level summit uh, in the coming weeks uh, 
organized by uh, Time's Up and BAFTA and some other key industry stakeholders looking at this issue specifically and asking the question, what can be done better to handle and address historical sexual misconduct allegations? Who does the responsibility fall to when these accusations emerge? Okay, one more story to squeeze in before the media quiz. Uh, As alluded to earlier, Facebook have launched its live audio and podcast services in the States. Um, Christina, it's not going to be long till it comes over here. Uh, What do you think are the pros to Facebook being involved in podcasting? The pros are Facebook's incredible, incredible user base. Um, And therefore people who like I can't reach the same audiences that Facebook managed to reach and so if they're by by some kind of I don't know I think we're discussing it before by proximity if more people are listening to podcasts then maybe also people will listen to some of the podcasts that I produce then that's a a good thing um but it, it could honestly just end up being an Amazon, right? So Amazon make up 70% of the sales online um, and that could easily be Facebook when it comes to podcasting, um, given that their user base is so huge, they could absolutely swallow the number of um, listeners whole almost. That's interesting, Caroline, because I haven't heard people make that claim before most people seem to think or seemed to think until Spotify came on the scene anyway that Apple had it sewn up when it came to podcasts I suppose now there are kind of two companies in town do you think there is room for even a company the size of Facebook to be a dominant player by providing effectively a glorified RSS feed um I feel like from what we've seen so far they're not at the moment trying to compete on the in the kind of Apple versus Spotify wars, you know, I don't think there's much suggestion of original content, or that you would um, sort of see Facebook as your kind of provider of podcasts. But more, I think, to me, it all just seems like an attempt from Facebook to get people to spend more time on Facebook. And if they're listening to podcasts in other apps, well, you could be doing that on Facebook. And I think their their live audio rooms in a kind of clubhouse way is another facet of that as well yeah let's talk about those jake um do you think spurred on by clubhouse and spotify their live audio function is going to catch i mean i've always felt with the live video thing even that it sort of exists but rarely trends if you see what i mean it obviously has a huge audience but it's like if you're not on it you sort of don't know about it yeah i mean this is this is classic facebook playbook isn't it it's it's taking elements from other apps and integrating them into their own product. And Caroline's exactly right. It's uh, designed to get people to spend more time with Facebook. And, you know, by and large, that tactic works. I mean, it famously imitated Snapchat stories on Instagram with huge success. Uh, You know, Facebook is currently going after the Tinder tribe with dating. Um, This is what Facebook does. What are the cons, Caroline? Well, I think Christina's right in the sense that, um, you know, Facebook sort of dips a toe into the water of a world and then suddenly owns the whole thing. I do think that as with any new platform that enters podcasting, podcasters have to be aware of what terms and conditions they're signing up to by putting their show on there. You know, is Facebook going to strip out your ads and monetize your show yourself? You know, all that kind of kind of stuff, I think, um, is is a possibility and then there's also um as spotify found in its early forays into podcasting there's the kind of moderation aspect of this is facebook just allowing anybody to stick a podcast up on facebook or is there some kind of filter or process that's going to keep the quality high and for audio producers christina i mean it is great to have more reach but it is yet another thing to maintain isn't it you can sync it so it just takes your rss feed and generates a post but if you're a network with 10 different shows, you might want to change the way that those look. It might be difficult to get all the RSSs going onto different pages and you have to build up new communities. It's time, isn't it, for very small, agile companies? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, if you think of it a bit like social media, right? So each social media platform has a different way of engaging with the audience. Um, and so does each kind of each app so it's Spotify has a different way of doing things Apple have a different way of engaging with audiences um, and all the other smaller um, podcast apps have a different way of engaging with audiences so to then add Facebook in the mix I kind of feel like and 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 you know I'm 
thankfully I'm able to have people um, on board helping to help me out here. But if you're a solo podcaster, how do you maintain this? Like how how do you kind of write a different a different description for each and every platform? Um, you're gonna probably just resort to you know plug and play. Like I'm just gonna upload it and let it scrape scrape my feed and that's it. It's like listening to my internal monologue. <laughs> uh, right, let's get on to the media quiz, uh, which this week is entitled "You Do the Math." I will quiz you with a complex media sum. All you need to do, (laughs) all you need to do, is provide the numerical media answer. So the closest contestant wins, so you each get a turn to answer each sum. It's best of three. Let's play. You do the math. Here's sum number one. The number of years Holby City will have been on the air before it ends in March, plus the age of casualty actor Derek Thompson. Uh, Jake. Derek Thompson plays uh, Charlie Fairhead in Casualty, if that helps. Yeah. Do I just have a guess? You have a guess, please. Well, you you calculate. I'm going to say 88. 88. Okay. Uh, Christina? Um, I was going to go for 76. Caroline? Oh, I'll go higher. 90. 95. Caroline is so tantalisingly close. Uh, It's definitely Caroline's point, though, uh, because the correct answer is 96, 23 plus 73. Um, Is he 73 now? Wow. Jake, Holby City being axed after 23 years. uh, Is that about refreshing the schedules or cost-cutting? The BBC is making room for a new nations and regions drama. Uh, Oh, I remember, yes, I was talking about that. Is that what that is? Yes. Okay. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Here's some uh, number two. Yeah, 20, 23 years. Not bad for a spin off series. <laughs> Here's some number two. The number of seasons made of Undercover Boss on Channel 4, plus the number of years after it was axed that ITV have revived it. Uh, <laughs> Jake, you probably have an unfair advantage here because you wrote the story for Deadline. I can't uh, so I'll, remember. I'll ask you first again. <laughs> um. <laughs> number of seasons of Undercover Boss, plus the number of years after it was axed that ITV have revived it. Uh, I'm going to say. <laughs> 13. And uh, Christina? I'm going to say 15. And Caroline? 14. 14. Okay. Well, you're all very much homing in around a number that Jake got absolutely bang on. The answer is 13. Six plus seven. <laughs> uh, this was a scoop for you at Deadline, wasn't it? Undercover Boss coming back. Yeah, it's coming back on uh, on ITV, um, which I think is a great show. And, uh, it is a, a great really show, isn't it? Format. But the American one's it's... better because in yes. America it's plausible that people don't know what their boss looks like. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> but also, this is a fantastic advert for Channel 4. You know, that, that show started live on a quiet corner of Channel 4 and it was exported to America where it was shown after the Super Bowl to 40 million people in America. You know, that, that is a, that, if that's not an advert for soft British power and Channel 4, I don't know what is. If you've never seen the episode where the Hooters boss had to watch as waitresses were forced to eat from a dog bowl, I would highly recommend. <laughs> uh, okay, and uh, question number three, some number three, apologies. The month that Times Radio has been on air times the average number of listeners the station is getting according to Rajar. Uh Christina, you can go first with this one. Just please just pick a number and put us all out of our misery. <laughs> 50,000. I feel like that's 50, too 000. high, but yeah, let's go Jake? for it. It's 12. 12, thank you. And Caroline? Uh, I'll say 24. 24. Jake has won the quiz uh, (laughs) because the answer is actually zero. So 12 is the closest. Uh, That is because um, there are no Rajars for Times Radio and it's been on for 12 (laughs) 12 months. Um, 12 times zero. Zero. isn't Isn't it completely staggering that in this day and age we have no radio ratings? We've had no radio ratings for more than a year. I mean, that One is day, absurd. someone will fill in a diary with a pen and paper so that they can get a £50 Marks and Spencer voucher and we'll find out if anyone is listening to an entirely digital station. It does feel weird. Uh, <laughs> um, Caroline, what do you reckon to Times Radio? Final thing. I mean, they've been going for a year. Uh, do you think they'd be happy with how it's been going? Honestly, I think not. I think they've been a bit upstaged by the likes of GB News, to be quite frank. You know, the playbook was... I know it's all the same stable, um, ultimately, ultimately. But I think the playbook was so similar, you know, the big ticket hires at the beginning, um, the you know, the promise of, you know, luring people away from the BBC. And then 
I'm not sure that there's been that many kind of earth-shaking moments that you had to tune into Times Radio 4. Right. Well, that has brought us to the end of this edition of the podcast. Uh, my thanks to Christina Moore, Caroline Crampton, and our quiz winner, Jake Cantor. Uh, if you haven't heard our Podcast Day 24 special... Why not? It is available for free right now on our feed. So to hear former WYNC and BBC exec Tony Phillips on the future of audio and Shima Oliai on making Dolly Parton's America, just hit follow on your podcast app of choice and look back through our archive. And remember, none of this is possible without your financial support. So if you can afford to help us keep independent, head to themediapodcast.com slash donate or in the spirit of today's stories, prevent us from being independent by buying us for many millions of pounds. Uh, and of course, do follow us to hear new episodes when they drop on your podcast app of choice. You can subscribe at podfollow.com slash themediapodcast. I've been Ollie Mann, the producers, Matt Hill and Peter Price. It was a Rethink Audio and PPM production. We'll see you in a fortnight. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.